Homestyle Green, episode 110. How do you make a power plant in the middle of an urban environment look interesting and appealing? And what does that have to do with sustainable houses? G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast all about inspiring people to make a better place to live. And this week on the show, we're back to Australia, and I'm talking with Peter Hogg from PHTR uh, Architects in Melbourne. And they, um, they've done some fantastic projects, and one that we talk about in particular is their Precinct Energy Project, which is basically a, a power plant stuck in the middle of an urban environment. And they were tasked with the challenge of making this thing... Uh, Fit in and kind of look like a, a. They've done a fantastic job making it look like a, a piece of art and and something that you, in, inspires people to go and take interest in in what's going on inside because uh, what's on the outside is only half the story and there's some really nice synergies there with with building and and designing homes that homes that function well is um, are not just about what goes on on the outside and how they look, but also how things function and, and what the purpose of that building is on the inside and also getting it uh, all compact and in a decent size space. Before we get into the interview with Peter, I just want to do a quick shout out to our fantastic sponsor, ProClimber. And ProClimber are experts in helping you with the envelope of your house in particular. One of the things that's got more and more complicated as we've got better at insulating our houses and making a bit more airtight, it's actually made our walls a bit more complex. And this can go horribly wrong if you don't know what you're doing, uh, particularly with respect to moisture. And walls do need to breathe, but they need to breathe the right amount and in the right direction. And that's where ProClimber can help. So if you're looking at doing a renovation or a new build, uh, give them a call. You can find them all at proclimate.co.nz here in New Zealand, proclimate.com.au in Australia, or anywhere else in the world, just proclimate.com. Now, I started out by asking Peter why he does what he does. Well, um, I suppose, you know, we're, we're trained as architects, so that's what we're into, and we're interested in design, and um, I suppose ultimately in creating better environments for people uh, to live in. So that's probably the first thing, I suppose, as far as ESD goes. Uh, we've always had a, an in interest in sustainability. Um, in my case, going back to when I was, you know, 12, 15 years old, whatever, um, just looking at the way things are going on the planet and thinking, well, if we want to be around long term, we'd better uh, sharpen our pencil and sort of um, stop trashing the place so much. You yeah. know? So uh, there's a kind of, if you like, a self-interest that, that you know you want to live on a on a planet that's sort of still functioning. Uh, while uh, you know we're all making huge demands on it, we can sort of uh, try and impact uh, lessen that impact through uh, good design. Was there so, anything specific you mentioned when you were 12 that mm. influenced you? <laughs> I suppose I used to read a lot of um, a lot of science and science fiction stuff. In fact, I still do, uh, but kind of the hard edge stuff. And a lot of the uh, science fiction I was reading back when I was a kid was 
about, you know, sort of environmental apocalypse and all this sort of stuff. Right. So it got me thinking and I got looking into it and you sort of went, oh, okay, you know, we've got, you know, surging population, we've got increasing demand on resources, we're polluting the oceans and trashing the the land as fast as we as we seem to be able to do so. What can we do to kind kind of turn that around? So that's, I suppose, where I started coming from. And then, you know, there was the rise of the environmental movement. I, when I was a kid, it was sort of on the agenda. Uh-huh. Um, Save the whales was the big one back yeah. when I was, um, you know, a teenager, I suppose. And to some degree, we've done that, but uh, we've got to go a lot further, really, if we're going to be uh, uh, long-term inhabitants. Of, of 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 the earth. So it's a bit of a leap from whales to houses. What what uh why architecture? Um I think Toby and I both um grew up in an environment where we had a lot of um my parents knew quite a few architects. Toby's um mum is an architect. And so design and architecture were always part of our sort of um upbringing. We we Toby and I go back you know, to school and in fact, kindergarten. Really? So, you know, we've sort of grown up together. Um, wow. And that's always been, architecture and design's always been an interesting thing. So when I, I suppose when I finished school, Toby seemed to know he wanted to do architecture all along. I sort of thought, well, I don't know what else I want to do. And um, so I, I, I thought it was something that had a bit of interest in, in a whole lot of different areas. So I thought, let's have a go at this. And it turned out I wasn't too bad at it. So. Nice. Uh, I suppose 25, or what is it, 33 years after I started or 32 years after I started architecture, I'm, I'm still doing it. And I really don't know what else I'd be doing now because um, while it's, you know, pretty can be pretty full on, pretty stressful at times, things like that, uh, when you get a, a great project at the end of it, it's sort of all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a long journey and uh, yeah. not not for the faint-hearted, but, uh, but, but great to be going... Uh, strong, doing something you love uh, after all that time because that's that's not all that common these days. No, a lot of people change careers and things. Um, I'm uh, coming up to my, I'm going to be 50 in a few weeks. So you sort of look at it and you say, well, you know, what else could I be doing? And I don't really know what else I'd be doing. And I kind of, I think I'm quite good at what I do. And I think, you know, Toby too. So I think we'll persevere and hopefully we'll get a few a uh, few good projects out before we uh, eventually, you know, pull up stumps or whatever. I guess, um, you know, the other thing is with architects is it actually takes a long time to learn the trade, learn the kind of craft of putting a building together and also st- to start to establish yourself as an independent sort of uh, practice, which, um, you know, takes some time too. So we're just kind of, in a lot of ways, I feel hitting our strides now. Right. Yeah, it's it, how do you feel about that art of uh, of architecture and and the fact that it is something that takes time to develop uh to become a really good architect. Yet do you feel that the general public uh acknowledge that or or value that? There's some acknowledgement of it. Um but you know, we live in a kind of pretty instant society where everyone wants stuff now and architectural projects usually take years to, you know, to design and then get built. But they also should last for a very long time. So I think it's important that people do take an interest in it. I mean, architecture should be for the long term. 
um, you know, it should be around in another 100 years or 500 years or whatever. So get it, you know, spend the time, get it right, and uh, you might have something worth hanging on to. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's where the challenge where housing in particular has become commoditized, and yep. that's all about, some might call it cheap and nasty, but it, it, you know, it's quick and, um, and a lot of sameness going on. So where, where is the place for architecture in all of that? Well, I guess the first thing is that architecture is you know, more than houses. So there's always been a role for the architect in the public realm, you know, institutions, public buildings, religious buildings, if you like, whatever. Yep. In, the, in the sort of housing market, traditionally, you know, most people didn't have an architect and in fact, most people still don't. They, they built their own house or might have engaged the builder to do it and have sort of done it in a vernacular style. So I suppose... It was only the wealthy who, um, you know, I'm talking 100 years ago, 200 yep. years ago, who really would engage an architect. Yep. Increasingly, um, with, uh, I suppose, increased affluence, a lot of people, um, you know, my, my, as I was saying, most people do buy their house off the shelf still. Um, you know, they go to a volume builder, or certainly in, in Australia. Yep. Buy, buy an apartment or whatever, there's an architect involved in that, but the volume builders may have an architect involved, but it may be, they may be churning out a hundred of them. But a lot of our work is, um, is in the inner city, uh, and that usually involves not new buildings, but conversion of existing buildings. It's very hard to do an off-the-shelf sort of um, builder's take on that. There's very strict planning controls often and very tight sites, so very, each one's, you know, unique yeah and you've got to come up with a creative response to it yeah. but i also think yeah a lot of people now you know they want to go that extra mile they want something a bit special for themselves yep. uh, and their families so they come to an architect yeah for their renovation or their new house yeah now you mentioned that you thought you were pretty good at uh what you do and i would suggest that Quite a few other people think that you're not bad at what you do either, given your long list of awards and accolades. Yep. What have what are some recent highlights been from uh, from your perspective? Well, we got a um, we did a did a tiny little project up in the country. It was called the Arrow Shed, which was um, uh, a minuscule thing, but it, it got a quite a lot of. Um, Press and a lot of notice. We got a, a commendation at the Institute Awards last year, yeah, and that was nice to get. And uh, it's really Toby's baby that one. Um, he he came up with the design. I, I had a uh, a different a different sort of vision of it. He said, "No, let's do this," and the client kind of just loved it. So nice. um, it's it's very iconic. It's very um, uh, very sort of striking building. It's it's a it's a single room building. It's a little art gallery for a, a guy out in the uh, country. It's basically where he puts his um his wife died a couple of years ago. She was an artist, so he hangs all her her paintings in there. So it, it's kind of a you know temple to love, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. But um, that that's been uh, that's been great getting a bit of uh, success. You know, you know, publicity for that. Uh, we've got a few other projects um, which. Uh, we've completed in the last couple of years. There was the um, the precinct energy project in Dandenong, which was a uh, low carbon power station, which uh, we did for places Victoria. Yeah, which we finished a couple of years back, and that was um, that was fantastic to get the opportunity to do that. It, the um, the project is 
for that they've got a, a basically centralised power station in the Sandinong urban renewal precinct, and that generates electricity, obviously, but it also um, captures the waste heat from the uh, electricity generation. They burn gas to do this, uh, natural gas, and uh, they capture the waste heat and pump it around the district so it's used to heat and cool buildings and provide um, hot water to a lot of the buildings in the precinct, and it's got... Uh, it's basically double the efficiency of your standard gas-fired power station. And this was meant to be uh, the first of uh, a whole chain of these um, projects that was going to be uh, implemented in mostly in inner Melbourne, but also a couple of other spots. Unfortunately, uh, we had a change in the state government here and it was a publicly funded project. They weren't, the new uh, Conservative government wasn't really interested in pursuing that anymore and the whole thing got canned. And the, the thing was, this was kind of a prototype. Yeah. And uh, further, later versions where the idea was that they would be burning biogas so they'd actually be carbon neutral. Right. Uh, but, you know, it was a big step in the right direction, big learning curve for a lot of people. And, you know, the thing is, we've got this expertise now um, how to do a, uh, a power station like this. And we're just kind of knocking on doors, talking to people, trying to get uh, get it to happen. There's, there's quite a lot of interest, but I suppose if a, if a domestic house project takes years to get going, then something like this probably takes even longer. Yeah, because a, it's a movement, really, isn't it? I mean, that's a yeah. fascinating thing. You to, to Just stepping back from that, uh, how does an architect get involved with essentially a, a power station? Power stations yeah. aren't usually attractive things. The, the the point with this one is because um, the, the the building that houses all this uh, uh, generating equipment and, and heat um, recovery equipment has to be centrally located within an urban precinct uh-huh. because it's it's heating and cooling building. It's got the pipes that run out of the building have a have a limit of about half a kilometre in either direction, so um, you can't just stick this out miles away from where you're actually going to be using the heat. Because so, this is just pumping out heat, isn't it? It's not electricity. Well, it, it's pumping out heat. electricity, yeah. but it's also pumping out... They, they use hot water to ch- 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 carry the um, the heat around the precinct. Yeah. And the further you, you you pump that, obviously, the more energy is required to pump it and also the more um, losses you get through the pipe network, you, you lose heat. So... a, a, a Half a kilometre either side of the power station is a is about optimum, and that means that the power station has to be located in 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 this case an urban renewal precinct. So yeah. it's got to look. It can't just look like a sort of a lump of concrete with a whole lot of pipes coming out of it, but it would have looked like. So we, you know, uh, we involved. First of all, we had to plan how the actual thing worked, which is quite uh, very involved. Um, there are similar power stations in Europe which use about three times the amount of land that we managed to um, cram this thing into. So it's really? very, very densely um, designed. So there was building the functional power station, if you like, and then we had to uh, make it a make it a kind of a landmark in uh, in downtown Dandenong, which, as I say, has had this huge urban renewal project um, going for a couple of years. So when you come out of Dandenong Station, our building is a short plaza and then our building is the sort of focal point when you come out. So it had to look pretty pretty good and I think um, 
think we did that. You know, I think uh, a lot of people uh, have uh, commented on it. We've had a lot of um, good press from some pretty uh, influential architects saying, you know, this is this is a you know a, a sort of standout building and uh, a great project. And you know, I guess the the follow-on to that is let's have a few more of them. Yeah, it's a very intriguing. But I love the big power switch on the side of it. Yeah, everyone likes that. And there's big, uh, big PowerPoint. There's a couple of big PowerPoints and things like that. So yeah, we'll that, we'll, that we'll put some links. It. We'll put some links up so people can find it because it is a very striking building, and I can see how it would attract a lot of attention. Yeah, um, thanks. And obviously, there's a lot of collaboration going on for that project because there's a lot of that's right, yeah, engineering type stuff going on on the inside. I imagine. There was a great deal of it. There was a whole bunch of uh, structural engineers, civil engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, two sets of mechanical engineers, actually, um, electrical engineers and all sorts of other consultants, like acoustic consultants. One of of the things with the building is that the uh, machinery inside of it is actually incredibly noisy. Uh, So there's two, two generators on the ground floor, which... Uh, compared to a 747 taking off. Uh, so if you can imagine one of those in sort of downtown, uh, you know, urban plaza, then we had to be very careful about how we did it. So it's basically built as a sort of concrete bunker with lots and lots of insulation on, on the inside yeah. and a sort of cellular structure. So if you, you can partition it off so that the noise uh, doesn't come flooding out. Yeah, right. So, so that was really, really important. Obviously, you can you can be as green as you want, but if no one can come within a hundred meters of the building because it's making such a noise, uh, you've had a bit of a disaster on your hands. So, lots of learning on the technical mm-hmm. side of that, and yep. it's obvious that you are really passionate about seeing more of these because this was done with the intention of creating more. Perhaps That's the government's right. dropped yep. the ball on that in the short term. Um, well, we've got a we've got a new government uh, back in Victoria, so that may change. We uh, actually kind of lobbied uh, when the the Labor people were in opposition, saying, you know, have a look at this. We took some politicians through; they were quite impressed. Of course, it all came down to how much is, you know, this cost and how much does that cost. So, yeah. um, it. You know, while they were, they were kind of interested, uh, the bottom line will be what determines where the sort of stuff goes ahead or not. Yeah. But uh, stepping back from that again, it's an interesting position for bringing back the role of the architect because it's not something that you own. You don't have any vested interest in um, the ongoing um, commercial model for that. But you obviously have a vested interest. And you mentioned at the beginning that buildings should last for a long time. And yep. that kind of it, it, it's a it emphasises that idea that architects really do have a leadership role if they're willing to take it, um, because they can influence things that are going to be around and and benefit society for for quite a long time. Yeah, I, I think um, often our role is to get the discussion happening. Uh-huh. We don't always have all the answers, but it was, you know, if you can come out with a building that um, gets noticed and uh, provokes some discussion for for whatever reason it might be, you know, in our case, it's, uh, it's a much more sustainable way to generate electricity, or it might be some urban comment, which our building is also, I suppose, it definitely is but, that, or, or it might be, you know, everyone sees 
know, there's a slide to the pool or whatever, or, or, or whatever it is. You generate discussion. If you yeah. can talk about sustainability and, and it can look good, people, people get sort of um, get interested, I suppose. I want to talk about sustainability because it's a key yep. feature of your what you do, and you mentioned it a few times on your website. How do you get to do sustainability projects? Well, that's a good one because not all the clients you get are interested in that sort of thing. Um, so I suppose uh, one sustainability, one you know, sustainably designed building often leads to another because you can show people we did this. Uh huh. So like, like okay, attracts like. That's interesting. Yeah. Like attracts like. Often we also get people who come to, you know, well, not often, but we do get people come to us and really that's not their main agenda. They've got a certain, often, you know, limited budget. Yep. But a, a family that they've got to provide for and their house is falling down or, or whatever it is. And uh, their primary interest is can they afford it and can they get, you know, what they want in terms of living space and, and, and all that sort of thing. On the other hand, um, most of those people are also up for the discussion. If you say, "Look, you know, if we do this, I mean, you can, you can bring it back to your energy bill if you want. If we do this, if we, you know, double glaze the windows and if we insulate properly and design from a passive solar design perspective from the outset, then you may actually you might, it might cost a little bit more in the initial build, but you'll save money over the long term. That often." And the other thing is, there's also regulations now that mean people have got to meet a certain minimum. It's not a very uh, demanding minimum. Like you know, you you don't have to do much to, to hit those buttons, but at least it gets that discussion going. You can say to people, well, you know, there are these options, and if you do this, well, first of all, you have to do this minimum. Beyond that, um, there's all these other things we can do too if you're up for the discussion. Yeah, often so- it comes under budget though. So generally, it comes back to budget, obviously, for a lot of people. It's about the money and framing it in terms of running costs is is usually the approach if you have to convince someone. Is that that what you're saying? If if they're not – if they don't come to you saying, I want to make it as sustainable as possible in the beginning, that's often how you end up framing the discussion. But you can also bring it in and just say, look, you know, for a comfortable environment, for starters. Yeah. Um, if you do this and that, you know, don't have west-facing, huge west-facing windows without some sort of protection, all that sort of thing. That that often, you know, people understand that sort of thing. So the, the, I guess the trick is to try and lead those clients who are maybe not so interested in the sustainability side of things down a sort of journey. Every Every design project you undertake is a bit of a journey uh, in terms of the process you go through, the stages of of development, the way that the client's ideas develop over the time that you spend with them, you do spend quite a lot of time sitting and talking and 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 trying to you know have a broader discussion, I suppose, yeah, than yeah. just about you know what the colour of the carpet is or, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, you've mentioned a couple of. Uh problems, common problems there. If you had to summarize mm-hmm. some of the the, the typical bad uh, design and features that you see in 
a sort of volume builds and project homes, mm. what would be some standouts for you? Where, where do people typically go wrong with? I, I think the first homes? one is very definitely that most of these places are way too big. Yep. Uh, I'm talking talking here about the, you know, the, the, the suburban greenfield site developments, the edge of edge of yeah. edge of town sort of stuff. Most of these are way too big. We, uh, Toby went uh, to visit some client, new clients the other week, and they're living in a currently living in a volume builder house, and they want something better for their new house. And he went along and he said, some, many of the rooms were just totally underutilized or just full of junk. They weren't actually using them. Yeah. So it was this appeal of lots and lots and lots of space, but do you really need that? You just fill it up with junk. You fill it up with junk. It costs a lot of money and a lot of uh, does a lot of environmental damage to heat and cool this sort of stuff. And it's also just consumes a huge amount of resources in um, in just building something that big. So I mean, I'd always suggest. You're better off having something a bit small and a bit better designed and a bit more um, ecologically minded than yep. just going for massive volume. That's that's the thing. I suppose the other thing is we see a lot of um, well, just poor orientation and design. So you know, building plans which are sort of you know they're not really designed for any particular orientation. Orientation is really Important when you uh, want to design to, you know, exclude the sun in summer and bring it in in winter. So, if you don't, if you just have a plan that you plonk down on any site, anywhere, in whatever configuration, it's never going to work that well for a sort of passive solar design thing. The other thing is, uh, you know, materiality is often the question. I mean, I see a lot of aluminium windows, and aluminium windows are. Well, very energy intensive to produce. They're very poor performers uh, in, in terms of thermal uh, aspect. I mean, sometimes commercial jobs almost have to do them, but there's a lot of big windows, a lot of a lot of poorly uh, designed aluminium sections and things, and they just suck the heat out of the building yeah. or let it in in summer, and that's all got to be made up with heating and cooling. So there's all that sort of stuff. I suppose when you get to larger issues like a lot of these uh, housing estates are miles from the nearest public transport. Everyone basically has to drive, and that's obviously a burden on on the environment. And also creates sort of you know communities which are kind of fragmented. Uh, people don't meet in the street; they yeah. don't really get to know the neighbours in quite the same way that they might otherwise. They have to get in their car to uh, go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, not to say that these places are all bad. I mean, obviously, people. Like them, they 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 go there. But I suppose um, there are alternatives, and you know we actually need to look at them pretty pretty bad. I, I guess the other one that just drives me bananas is there's this um, fashion in the, at the moment in Australia. I don't know that elsewhere, but for black tiled roofs now. Black, not black tiles. Any, black tiled roofs now. Black tile will absorb the sun something phenomenal and yeah. re-radiate it back and it holds on to the heat. So it's about the worst sort of thing. You know, if it was white or lighter colour, it would obviously reflect the sun a lot more. So it adds a huge amount to the heat load and and then there's, you know, usually no eaves and all that sort of stuff. So you sort of think, yeah, yeah. Why, do, why are we doing this? 
Uh, well, that's a good question. Having cra- said that, there's often a lot of solar panels on these new houses too nowadays, which yeah. is heartening, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess flipping those around, uh, that's a pretty good list of things that are pretty easy to, to fix, really. Um, aside from the loca- location's a bit tricky for some people, mm. but setting that aside, you know, figuring out where the best place to actually be located is, would yeah. would the sort of the opposite of those be your recommendations for making a better home? So uh, starting with the size? Generally. I suppose in our case, a lot of, as I said before, a lot of our work is um, renovations and projects and things in the inner city, and there's yeah. often a real limit on how much additional uh, building you can actually put on a site. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just there's not enough room. So, I mean, our, I've got a, I've got, I'm married, I've got three kids, they're all teenagers now. We've got our house is about 140 square metres. Right. Uh, and that's probably... How many like, bedrooms is that? That's four bedrooms. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an old weatherboard house in, in the inner city with some old brick stables out the back, which we've sort of converted into part of it. So it's, it's, a, it's an unusual house. But 140 square metres seems to work, you know, with us. I mean, I suppose uh, the planning of it has been pretty carefully considered. Uh but, you know, we don't feel the need, I think, for additional space, really. Yeah. But that enough. And you sort of look at some of the houses that have been built on the on the outskirts of town and the enormous, not just on the outskirts of town, some of the, a lot of the um, middle-wing suburbs, all the old sort of uh, California bungalows and all that sort of thing have been, uh, in the places have been demolished on large uh you know, sort of boxes often put on them. Um, so it's not just not just the outer suburbs where it's happening. It's happening kind of everywhere. Yeah. Not so much right in the inner city, which is where I'm. I kind of live. But um, you know, the the suburban landscape's being transformed. We're losing a lot of our old ha- housing stock, and it's being replaced by kind of mostly pretty tacky and poorly thought out, um, oversized. Mansions and mixed mansions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So size is definitely um, something to to think about, and and how much you really need. And that's a that's a pretty good living example of of four mm. bedrooms within one hundred and forty square meters. Yeah. Um, what you mentioned windows there. What what do you try and use as an alternative to aluminium for residential property? Um, generally, we use timber. Try and make sure it's sustainably. Um, Obtained timber, mm-hmm. you know, certified. Timber tends to work um, a lot better because it's just got much lower conductivity. Yep. And it's also, in terms of the embodied energy of timber, it depends where it comes from. If you're importing it from America, it might have you know, higher higher embodied energy. But locally harvested timber generally has a much lower sort of energy um, input than aluminium does. It also performs a lot better. You do have to maintain it. I, I reckon it generally looks better. And um, there are some great uh, window fabricators around who you can work with to you know, get a get a good result. Uh, the other thing is um, one of the projects we did with, did with this uh, young German builder guy called Burkhard Hansen, who runs a company called Carbon Light, and he uh, he's very much into the passive house uh, thing. So we worked with him on. In fact, he did the 
the little Arrow studio up in the country. That's oh, the first yeah. Yeah. project we did with him. And that's got some um, some passive house elements in it, although could have more, but it's, it's a one-room thing. But he um, he really pushed to use these German windows from, um, you know, from Dorfer, and they were triple glazed. And they're kind of dynamite. Uh, they really, uh, you know, you, you sort of look at them and you realise how much further we can go in this country with um, with, with thought into, into the design of, of um, how we put all this stuff together. But they, they've performed extremely well. Um, yeah. They, you know, they cut out all noise. Um, when it's hot outside, it's cool inside and, and vice versa. And they've just got some very nice um, hardware and sort of actions, you know. So we've got these, uh, you know, tilt and turn windows yep. and, and, and all sorts of things like that. So yeah. ultimately, there are people making that sort of stuff in Australia and um, perhaps in New Zealand as well, I'm not sure. And but they they tend to uh, struggle a little bit on price. So um, yeah, the the Germans have it down pat. They've got very large uh, industrial plants churning this stuff out. It's all highly computerised, highly automated, and they just churn it out and they can turn it around really quickly. Whereas in Australia, for the most part, it tends to be still a kind of uh, workshop environment. It, you know, it's not. It's not at that sort of mega scale. So, yeah, uh, yeah. But having said that, there's some very nice stuff, and a lot of it's using imported um, technology, so the triple glaze and all that sort of thing. Is, just coming on onto that price, because that tends to be the the obvious question. Is that a, a how do you have that conversation with a client if you propose? Sorry, yeah, if you if you propose something that is, I don't know, twenty thirty percent more than what they could get using standard yeah. aluminium. How do they respond um, to that? Differently. Some people ask for aluminium for other reasons, uh, because of maintenance issues or whatever. And, you know, you, you've got to have a discussion. If they don't want to go down that path, well, you know, what do you do? Uh, I suppose you have a discussion, they've made their decision, and ultimately it's their house. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, though, um, you know, you, you sort of explain why you want to do it this way. And I think most of them come to play. In the case of the triple glazed windows, by the way, uh, they we got them for the same price as locally made double glazed. Wow. So it was it was not uh, an economic problem uh, or an economic issue in that case. Um but, you know, always, nowadays, I say, go double glaze if you can. Um, most people will, partly because it gets you a six-star rating. But also, you have the discussion, and it's not that much more expensive anymore. It used yeah. to be, you know, you, you paid through the nose for double glazing. When I first started out in private practice, you, you, no one could afford it, really. But now, it's it's almost standard. Yeah. And I think that's good. You know, I've got yeah. it. Um, cool. Hey, look, we, we should probably start wrapping up, but um, clearly there's a lot of stuff that you've learned doing what uh, you do, and there's some great. Uh, you you kind of make it sound pretty easy and and pretty pretty common sense. A lot of your stuff, and I guess it is after the uh, amount of time that 
you've been doing it. Um, I, I think it's coming into general. Everyone's aware of it now. And yeah. People always ask, and sometimes they haven't got the money to go through with it, or there's another priority. But most people will ask. Um, you know, it's it's hard to be completely unenvironmentally aware nowadays. Yeah. So it's good that you, as a 12-year-old, were a little bit ahead of the curve there. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. I like to think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I guess the other thing is environmental design is one component. I think there's good design is good design. And if you can do combine the two, and hopefully we do, you know, it's not just about, uh, you know, your solar panels and all that sort of stuff. It's 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 got to be integrated into design. You've got to make something special that really works on all levels, not just sort of an ESD level. It's got to be it's got to be architecture, it's got to be a good environment for people to live in. People got to like it. Yeah. They won't come back. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really good note to finish on that that importance of integrated design and, and that is what links projects like the um the precinct energy project where where clearly that was an integrated process and that was what led to the success and, and yeah. um you emphasised a few you times. Have a good that, client too. Yeah, well, having a good client, but you you also talked about the fact that it's a journey and and it can take yeah. a while, and you spend a long time listening to clients. And I think um, what I'm hearing from people in the industry is that good clients are ones that are prepared to spend not only some money up front, but also a bit of time, yeah. and having a conversation and and doing some good research because there's. There's uh there's so many decisions to to make and and kind of mm, ideas yeah. to get across. Yeah. Hey, um, where can where can people find find you and find out more about what you uh, what you do? Okay, well we're in West Melbourne, so look us up or we'll check us out on the web, which is www.thtr.com.au. We've got a website which we're uh, about to upgrade again, but it's got quite a few of our projects on it. And, um, you know, give us a call. Uh, all our details are on the website. So happy to hear from you. And you do? We'd love to do, love to do a project in New Zealand. Yeah, well, it would be great to have some of that experience over here because they're very similar problems. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you, uh, you, you do a whole range of uh, projects? You're not, not limited by, um, by size? We, uh, We've got a, a strong portfolio in, in, in residential, but we're also doing multi-residential and uh, some institutional work. And uh, we'd love to do some more uh, industrial work in the form of um, power stations and, and other uh, environmentally-minded projects, I suppose to say. Nice, nice. Hey, my well, son's th- just coming in the back door. Oh, perfect. Hi. Hey, well, thank you very much for your time, Peter. really appreciate it. And uh, and good luck pushing the uh, the agenda forward for getting more of those cogeneration and uh, energy projects. Thanks a lot, Matthew. Cheers. All right. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Peter Hogg there, finishing up that interview with uh, all about Peter Hogg and Tony Reed Architects. They are an architecture firm based in Melbourne, but they are doing work elsewhere in Australia as well. So if you've got an interesting project, then definitely. Give them a call. You can find them at phtr.com.au and all their contact details, plus some great images of the projects that they've been involved with are all on their website there. A couple of interesting things that I took out of that interview. 
Uh, aside from the the generation plant, and I def, definitely recommend going checking that out because it's uh, it's quite a striking building. Um, but you're probably not going to be building one of those yourself. But you might be if you're listening to this podcast, be going to build or design a house. And I really like what Peter had to say about some of those key areas where houses can go wrong. The first one being size, and that's a very common theme on this show. And uh, I know that Australia, New Zealand, and the US are leading the world in the wrong direction um, regarding house size. So great to hear that that trend is starting to change and people are starting to think about, do I really need a house that's 200 square square metres for, for two or three people. The other one was orientation, and this keeps coming up as well, placing a house the right direction on the site to optimise the sun. And that doesn't always mean getting the most sun, because if you're in a hot climate, then you want some sun during the, the winter to keep you warm, but you also want to avoid overheating in the summertime. And then, of course, location and this concept of connection with the local community. Do you have to drive everywhere? Do you want to have to drive everywhere from your house? Keep in mind that your house is not just about the bricks and the the wood and the timber and the, the iron. It's about the lifestyle that you're creating as well. And where it is and how it links to the community around you is a big part of that. What did you take out of that interview? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can... Leave a comment on the show notes. Now, they may not be up straight away, and I apologize for that. I'm a little bit behind on that, but you can always contact me via email, matthew at homestylegreen.com, or you can leave a comment over at Facebook or on Twitter. I've also recently joined Instagram as well, so you can follow me on all those channels and also interact with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you are embarking on a journey of designing your own home or perhaps you're looking to help other people design your own home and you want some some advice on a specific aspect of that, then I'd love to help you out. It's uh, one of the services that Homestyle Green does offer is a house plan review. And uh, basically that means looking at a concept plan or at any stage of your design and um, depending on what the specific questions you are or how advanced that plan is, I can have a look at it and give you some guidance there. It's all independent, which is a valuable thing these days because chances are if you're going to a salesperson for a product or a service, they're probably trying to sell you something. So if you want some independent advice, I'd love to help you out. I can also help you with modeling, um, some visualization if you want to create a 3D model to see what something might look like when it's finished and also Homestar Rating as well. That is it for this week. Thanks very much for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. And uh, tune in again next week to Homestar Green. My name's Matthew Cutler-Welsh. Now go make a better place to live.